so desire, you can be dismissed right over here with Mr. Lee for kids' worship, and you'll return during the last song. And I'd ask everybody else to turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament, uh, to the little book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 2 of Colossians 2, verses 8 uh, through 15. Colossians 2, 8 through 15. And uh, the series that we're in right now is about growing in our faith. And the ordinary means that God uses to give us the grace that we need to grow. Uh, They're not the only means that God uses to grow our faith. They're not the exclusive means that God uh, uses to give us grace. But they are the ordinary and the primary grace uh, program that God has ordained for the growth of His children in grace. And there are four ordinary means, ordinary means of God's extraordinary grace to us. And those means are the Word. And we talked about how the Word, how God uses the Word by the Spirit to save sinners, to rescue people from death and bring them to life, to, to transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light. And also to sanctify saints, that those who have have already been saved, as we hear the word read and preached, as we read the word on our own, in all the ways that we are exposed to the word, the Spirit uses it in our hearts and in our lives to transform us into the image of Christ. The word. And last week we talked about prayer. About how God invites us not into a process of growth so much as a relationship with Him, an ever-deepening relationship with Him. When we pray, God graciously promises to us His presence. The Lord is near to those who call on Him. And His provision, He meets our needs. And His power, where He can do abundantly more than we ever ask or imagine through prayer. And then the last two things that are ordinary means of grace are what we call together the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, what is a sacrament? I'm glad you asked. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ. So it had to be instituted by Jesus himself, wherein by sensible signs. So we talked about the word, right? How God verbally and in a written way declares himself to his people. But in the sacraments, God gives us his word visibly and tangibly. We can see it. We can touch it. In the case of the Lord's Supper, we can even taste it. Sensible signs. Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented sealed and applied to believers. There are only two ordinances that Jesus instituted and commanded his church as signs, visible and tangible seals of his grace. The first is baptism, where Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends to the Father, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go and make disciples of all nations, doing what? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then also he commanded and instituted the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, both with the bread and the cup, do this in remembrance of me. 
Here in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, we have some of the, it's only 90 verses, but we have some of the most concise and clearest and most crucial teaching about Jesus Christ in the entire New Testament. Everywhere that we read in these short chapters, Jesus is absolutely central as our supreme sovereign, our substitutionary savior and the sanctifier of his people. In Colossians 2, 8 through 15, what we see is that the sacrament of Christian baptism is a completely Christ-centered event. All right, this is contrary to the way in which baptism is performed in many places today, where it becomes a man-centered event. No, baptism, according to God's word, is a Christ-centered event. It is a means of grace to God's people, and it draws its meaning, its institution, and its significance from only one source, Jesus The truths that baptism proclaims help us to see Jesus and ourselves more clearly. So I'd ask you to please stand in honor of God's word if you are able, and we'll read Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in what? In baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's thank God for his word this morning. Oh Lord, we thank you that you inspired this word, that you have preserved it for us, that you've given it to us by your grace in our own language so that we can hear and understand. And Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit would take your word and do its work in our hearts and that you would teach us who we are and what baptism says, signifies, and seals to the children of God. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Identity matters. And when I was growing up, particularly in my teenage years, from time to time, I would hear a little phrase, a little sentence uh, from one or the both of my parents as I was perhaps heading out the door to spend time with my friends, and it was simply this, remember who you are. Now, admittedly, there was an edge to that phrase, right? Remember who you are. You are Tommy and Elaine Carr's son. We are the pastor's family. What you do says something about us. So, there are certain consequences if your obligations go unfulfilled. But you know that, that same declaration, remember who you are, uh, had a soft side too. 
It said, you're my son, and I love you no matter what. Identity matters. And baptism is about identity. Baptism is about who you are. It's about whose you are and about how you came to be his. See, baptism signifies an identity, it seals an identity, and it gives us an identity. Baptism is God visibly and tangibly speaking and telling us who we are in Christ. Let's say that again. What baptism is, is God visibly and tangibly speaking to us and declaring who we are in Christ. Well, who is that? Well, Colossians 2, 8 through 15 tells us, first, in Christ, believers are circumcised and crucified. All right? In Christ, believers are circumcised and crucified. Anytime that we talk about New Testament baptism, the sign of baptism, we need to remember that it is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sign of circumcision. And so there's a logical connection here. That's why when Paul wants to talk about baptism, the immediate connection that he makes is to Old Testament circumcision. And he reminds the Colossians of who they are in Christ in verse 11. He says, In him you were also, what? Circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. A circumcision was the, the sign and seal of God's covenant with Abraham. God came to Abraham. He said, Abraham, you're my guy. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to make you a blessing. In you, there are going to be many nations. Y'all remember, God shows him the sand on the shore, the stars in the sky. He says, this is how many children you're going to have. He's 100 years old and has no kids. And he says, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. God's promise, God's promise, God's promise, God's promise, and then God gives a sign of his promise to Abraham. That sign is circumcision, Genesis 17. You're going to be circumcised in the foreskin of your flesh. Old Testament circumcision initiated believers like Abraham. So it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he was initiated into God's covenant relationship through circumcision, the sign and seal of circumcision. But it wasn't only for believers because God commanded Abraham to apply it not only to himself, but also to his sons, Ishmael and Isaac, the child of promise. Romans 4.11 says that Abraham's circumcision means the same thing as our baptism. It is the sign of the righteousness that comes by faith, which of course was applied to both Abraham and his infant child, Isaac. Old Testament circumcision sets one apart. It sets a person apart as under the authority of Yahweh, under the authority of God, subject to the blessings and curses of the covenant. Circumcision was a bloody sign of cleansing, representing the necessity of bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins. Old Testament circumcision was a physical sign, something that had to be done with hands. But here in Colossians 2, Paul teaches that Christians have been circumcised, but we've been circumcised with a circumcision that is made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision that Paul describes as the circumcision of Christ is not a physical 
circumcision. It's not one done with hands. It is a spiritual circumcision. What happens in this spiritual circumcision is that our body of flesh, our sinful nature, is put off through union with Christ. In the circumcision of Christ, believers are spiritually united to Christ in his crucifixion so that his death becomes our death and our old self, our sinful nature, has been crucified. Just a few verses beyond this particular text in Colossians 2.20, Paul helps us understand this concept of union with Christ when he writes, we died with Christ to the world. When Jesus died on the cross, all those who were united to him from before the foundation of the world, those who would be united to Christ by faith were crucified with him. Galatians 6.14, Paul says that he doesn't want to boast in anything but the cross of Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Probably the clearest expression of this is probably my life verse, but Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ today, you are spiritually circumcised. And your spiritual circumcision is good news. It means when Christ died, you died. When Christ endured God's justice on the cross, what you deserve was absorbed and satisfied. Your old self, your sinful nature was once and for all crucified. The Holy Spirit, applying the work of Christ to you, has cut away your sinful flesh and cleansed you from all unrighteousness. You are united to Christ by faith. His righteousness is yours and your old self has been put off. Isn't that good news? The reason Paul uses the language of circumcision in verse 11, and baptism in verse 12 is because he wants his readers to grasp the connection between the old covenant sign and the new covenant sign. Baptism has fulfilled circumcision as the sign and seal of God's promises, but their meanings are essentially the same. Circumcision looked forward to Christ in faith, and baptism looks back to Christ in faith. Baptism expresses the same reality of union with Christ in his bloody death that circumcision pointed toward. Just as circumcision initiated believers and their children into the covenant community of God's people, so does baptism. Just as circumcision pointed forward to the blood of Christ poured out for our cleansing, so baptism points back to it. Just as circumcision prefigured the circumcision of Christ, so baptism expresses our union with Christ in his crucifixion, which he himself referred to as a baptism. When he said to his disciples, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? In Christ, believers are circumcised and crucified. And this is what baptism declares about us. Well, how would it revolutionize our discipleship? If we stopped thinking about discipleship, okay, now you have said yes to Jesus, here are the rules. And we gave people a path. We gave people a process. We give people law so they can start to be good and show that they belong to Jesus. What if instead we started with their baptism and said, what your baptism says about you is that you belong to Christ. This is absolutely, irrevocably, objectively who you are in him. Now live it out. 
So many times I think we celebrate baptism when, when a believer is baptized or when a child is baptized. We make a pledge and a vow that we're going to help raise the child in the training and admonition of the Lord, that we're going to help believers to grow in their faith. But, but so many times I think that, that our impression of what happens there stays there. But what we confessed a little while ago is that we are to improve our baptisms all our life long. That what baptism is meant to do is pour grace out into our lives, not only at the moment that it happens, but all throughout our lives. So that baptism is a constant source of reminding us of our identity, of signifying and sealing it to us so that we remember in Christ we have been circumcised and crucified once and for all. You have been baptized if you have, and have embraced the identity of your baptism through faith in Christ, my question is, do you live as one who has already died? Do you understand that your baptism, whether it was as an infant or whether it was as an older person, is the proclamation that you have been crucified with Christ, that you have been circumcision, I'm sorry, circumcised by the circumcision without hands? My take is that many of us have not yet exchanged our identities. We do not live as baptized people, but as those whose old self is still on, who are still enslaved to our sinful nature. And yes, our sinful nature is still very much alive. I was reminded of that this morning when I was trying to get here on time. Our sinful nature is still trying to deceive us and destroy us. But our baptisms declare that the decisive blow has been struck. We have been spiritually circumcised. We have been crucified with Christ. We are free, completely free of the penalty of sin and also free from the enslaving power of sin in which we once walked. We have a new identity, circumcised and crucified with Christ. But Paul pushes us even further into the beauty of our union with Christ in the next verse. He says that in Christ, believers are buried in baptism. Not only are we circumcised and crucified, but we're also buried in baptism. Now, most sermons that I have heard and read on this passage uh, pretty much focus exclusively on the mode of baptism. So that's an intramural debate between Christians where uh, we have some people that are immersers, so they, we, we call them dunkers, right? So they dunk... We generally call those Baptists, and they say that, um, that absolutely uh, immersion is the only way of baptism. It's the only version of Christian baptism. Well, we would beg to differ, because I can't immerse anyone right here. Uh, instead, we, we, we sprinkle or pour, and so there's a disagreement between Christians about that. Now, the difference, one of the differences would be that we accept any application of water in the triune name of God as a valid baptism, whereas our brothers who believe in immersion only do not. But what they find in this passage is evidence to suggest that that Christian baptism must be done by full immersion because it's a picture of Christ's burial. And I I respectfully disagree uh, with that assessment and and, and see many places in the New Testament where uh, baptism by immersion is not only unlikely but also impossible. Not that it wasn't done by immersion in some places, but it certainly wasn't in others. And in fact, the Bible uses the word baptizo to describe sprinkling in Hebrews chapter 10 when it talks about what Moses did with the book of the law and the people when he took the hyssop and the blood and sprinkled it on the book of the law and on the people. What he was doing was baptizing them. Matter of fact, what happens when we baptize 
someone by sprinkling, we are picturing Jesus Christ, our great high priest, sprinkling his blood on the altar of God as a sign and seal of our being cleansed by his blood. That's a whole other sermon. I actually think we miss the point of this verse if we use it as a way to argue for a particular mode of baptism. Paul has something more foundational and more glorious in mind. He teaches us that in baptism, we have been buried with Christ. Water baptism signifies and seals the spiritual reality of our cleansing by union with Christ in his cross and in his grave. In Mark 10, 39, Jesus is telling his disciples about his coming death when he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Again, in Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus uses the language of baptism to describe his suffering, death, and burial. And Romans 6, 4 tells us that we are baptized with him into death. There's a beautiful finality in what baptism teaches us about our identity. We have been crucified with Christ, and we have been buried with him in the grave. We did not come back out of that grave, but he did. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In him, the old us is dead and buried. We are united to Christ. We are definitively his, and that is our new identity. Since I've been at Back Creek, which is the first time I've ever been in the lead role as senior pastor, I've done quite a number of funerals, both for people that I knew and people that I, I didn't know. Um, and the reality is, in the funeral portion, in the, in the worship service, a lot of people tend to hold it together pretty well. But then what happens at the graveside? When we're committing the person's remains to the earth and their soul to the Lord, people begin to emote and people begin to fall apart. Why? Because there is a finality to burial. And that's what's true of our identity is that there is a finality that baptism proclaims about our old nature. Instead of living as those buried with Christ in baptism, With the issue of our identity sealed, I think we often choose to live as if we were unbaptized. As if we have more to do to be accepted by God or as if we are still a slave to the old nature. But your baptism, once again, proclaims that you are united to Christ, not only in his death, but also in his burial. His righteousness is yours, as sure as that water was sprinkled on your head, or as sure as you were immersed in it. You have been crucified and buried. And this brings not only freedom, but rest. I'm convinced that if we would stop striving so hard to be pleasing to God and finding our identity and how well, quote unquote, we are doing, and start resting in and meditating on this one who has pleased God on our behalf, we would experience a great harvest of righteousness. If we would stop navel-gazing and seeing all the ways in which we either are trying to be righteous or the ways in which we fail to be righteous and instead look to Christ, we would grow All of God's affections and purposes and promises are centered on Jesus Christ. And it is in Christ that all the promises of God for our redemption, signified and sealed by circumcision in the old covenant, signified and sealed by baptism in the new covenant, find their yes and amen in him. As those who are in Christ, circumcised and crucified, buried in baptism, Paul also demonstrates that in Christ, believers are risen and reconciled. We're risen and reconciled. In verses 12 through 15, look at those again with me. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As baptism signifies your death and burial with Christ, so it also signifies and seals your resurrection with him from the dead through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, we who were born rebels, slaves to sin, opposed to God and cut off from his covenants, we who justly deserve God's wrath and curse because God loves you, Because God loves you, he sent his only son to live a life in which there was no treason, there was no trespass, there was no rebellion, there was no slavery, only costly obedience to his loving father. And for your sake, the father led his unblemished lamb to the slaughter at the hands of sinful men to be crucified as a criminal. And on that cross... Jesus endured God's justice for you. In your place, condemned he stood. This Jesus, whom we crucified, God has raised from the dead. By God's grace, you who have believed have with him also been raised. Jesus was dead, but he is now alive. You were dead, but God made you alive together with him. I can't help but think of that third verse of Uh, It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. As we share in Christ's death and burial and resurrection, we also share in his victory over his enemies and ours. I would just call you today, if you are a believer, remember your baptism. I said that to my children this morning around the table. And all all three of my girls uh, were baptized as infants. I said, remember your baptism. And they said, we can't. I don't remember what happened to me when I was baptized. Coincidentally, that's something that uh, some of our fellow believers say, it's really important that you should be able to remember your baptism. Well, let me tell you something. Do you remember your birth? Now, and, and the truth is, you probably don't remember your new birth either because you didn't participate in it. God acted on you. He took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Jesus accomplished your salvation through the shedding of his blood on the cross 2,000 years ago. And that is what baptism proclaims about you. It is God speaking and God acting, not you. And so I told my children this morning, you don't need to remember the actual event of your baptism. You need to remember that you are baptized and that God has laid claim to you. That's who you are. That's whose you are. And it says how you came to be his. Baptized, blood-bought lambs of God. Your baptism is a precious means of God's grace to you. It is the sign and seal of your union with Christ. God has given to us and to our children a beautiful picture and promise which proclaims that in Christ we are his now and forever. 
We have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ and crucified with him. Our old self has been decisively dealt with on the cross and put off in the new birth. We've been buried with him in baptism. The question of our identity has been settled once and for all. We have been raised with Christ. We are a new creation in him, reconciled to God and victorious over his and our enemies. Now, when a new believer or, a, or an covenant child is baptized, what I would call you to do is, is to open your eyes to see and hear the sacrament again preach the gospel to you. Hear God's grace is communicated not only to the person that is being baptized, but to you who believe. You are baptized. Do not forget what this means. Remember your baptism. As my parents would say, remember who you are. I want to quote a hymn. Jesus, I my cross have taken. And it's only one verse, but I feel like I need to define a term before we do. So there's this word in it. Repine simply means to feel discontent. Now here's the verse. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for baptism. Thank you that it is a means of grace to your people, not only tied to the moment wherein it happens, but Lord, all our lives long, your sacrament proclaims to us our identity as those circumcised and crucified, as those buried with Christ in baptism, as those raised with him to newness of life. Lord, I pray for our covenant children who are baptized before they can ever remember. Lord, that your claim on them would hold true. Lord, that each of them would come to know you at such an early age that they can't ever even remember a time where they rebelled against you. Lord, I pray for those who have come to faith later on and been baptized. Lord, I ask that you would use their baptism powerfully in their lives as a stake in the ground where their identity was transformed from death to life, from darkness to light, from their, their old self to their being a new creation in Christ. For all of us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember our baptisms. Lord, to every time we see someone baptized, every time we reflect on the reality that we are baptized, Lord, preach the gospel to us by your Spirit. Remind us that it is you who speaks in baptism, that you who acted to redeem us. And let us give you praise and honor and glory for it all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.